This is Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Norman Brannan, who is a musician, he's a writer, an educator. It's a lot of different things, and we'll get into that. That's kind of one of the bigger topics of this. As a musician, he is most famous as uh, the guitarist in the uh, emo band uh, Texas is the Reason, one of the uh, from the mid 90s of kind of a, a pivotal band in that genre. And uh, you, if you want to get deep in that, he has a, a, a set of essays, I think of three essays about uh, his experience in the emo world that you can find on the Talk House. And you should uh, look that up. But uh, this conversation is going to hit on a lot of things, including uh, dance music, uh, sexuality, the internet, uh, just a lot of different things. Uh, Norman is a brilliant guy, and it was a thrill to talk to him. Um, so here we go. This is Norman Brandon. You're not telling me nothing that I... uh, Norman, uh, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? So that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'll, okay, I'll try to like, I'll break it down into three things. So one, I'd say uh, I'm best known probably as a musician. Uh, bands like uh, Texas The Reason being the most popular band. Uh, and then over the years, other bands, um, Fountainhead, Resurrection, 108, Shelter, New End Original, a lot of things like that. And... Uh, then on the other hand, I've been a writer and predominantly a music writer. Um, in the 90s, um, I used to publish a fanzine called Antimatter, and then I used to write for everyone from, you know, alternative press to vibe, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And then the third wave of that is what I call um, the muse follower. <laughs> and uh, and that's just where I, I sort of follow my muse into situations like uh, at one point I hosted a television show on Here TV that was sort of a queer pop culture show, uh, and that was, I never thought I'd be a television host. That was interesting. Um, I at one point wrote uh, or helped to write and did the interviews for a Thursday uh, full length documentary film. That was fun. Um, I've written songs for other artists. I sort of just go where, uh, I'm needed. <laughs> and you've also had like a, a sideline in real estate, right? Yeah. I mean that, that sort of like is a weird thing. Um, <laughs> because I'd say that the reason I got into real estate was because the person that I work with, he is, uh, his company it's his company, and he is actually the singer for Cause for Alarm, who were an early 80s New York hardcore band. And um, so I've known him since the early 90s. I was a massive, massive fan of his band, mostly because I think in New York, um, like when you get into hardcore in the 80s, you know, there were only so many records. There were only so many bands. Um, it's not like now where you get into hardcore and it's like, where do I start? Like back then it was literally like, here's where you start. 10 records go. And, you know, the cause for alarm record was one of them. So, uh, you know, I became really good friends with him after cause for alarm broke up. He got into real estate in the 1980s and, um, his company is just very different and it's cool. And so, uh, I kind of go with it cause it, it also is very, uh, allows me to do other things. It's very free. Yeah. 
And and you were also a college professor for, I think, are you still a college professor? I did do that. Uh, no, I, I backed out of that because um, everything else was taking too much time and teaching is really something that I realized needs to be done by itself. Like God for like God bless those teachers that are like doing the side hustles and waiting tables and doing, you know what I mean? Like I don't know how you do it other than just the fact that we have to, because teachers don't get paid well. Um, but I did it for five years. I taught at Brooklyn college and, um, I mean, honestly, I miss it. I love teaching, but it's very difficult to survive. And I found that I was becoming a shitty teacher because I wasn't really surviving very well. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I was kind of pushing on those last two points is I I think you've just had a, I mean, just between all the things you have just said in the past, like two minutes, like that is a rich life. That is a lot of different directions you have gone in. And I I guess it wasn't necessarily the plan. (laughs) I mean, there was no plan. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I've always sort of been, uh, you know, winging it partially because, um, you know, when I first sort of came into the world and, and, or, you know, came into public consciousness, it was a situation where I, um, you know, I dropped out of school when I was 15, just about to turn 16. And I was basically back in New York City trying to figure out what I was going to do. And at those point, at that point, really, it was just a survival thing. And I know it seems crazy. This is the late 80s, right? Uh, So very late 80s, early 90s. And I was going to say, so like, I think it's crazy when you think about this now that, um, you know, my big idea when I was 16 years old was I'm going to be a writer and a musician because those are not ways to make money. Trust me. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, they were the only things that I sort of knew how to do. And so that's, I just committed myself to figuring out how to do it and not die. Yeah. And it's funny because you, you, you say that, but you know, you, you did end up becoming a published writer. You did, you were in bands like Texas is the reason was uh, a major, right? We broke up the week we were going to sign. The contracts were all set up, but close I enough. Was, uh, <laughs> I basically just was like, you know, signing that contract felt like I was marrying those people and at the time, I just was like, wow, I'm not ready to get married. So <laughs> so what happened like once you left that band? Like what, what was the, the next step of your life? It got dark. I mean, I'd say that when that band broke up, um, everything was called into question about my direction and my life and, and sort of, there were a lot of things that were happening simultaneously at the same time that the band broke up. I was experiencing a wave of, I've, I've had um, severe depression my entire life. Um, And it, it comes in waves. And that was definitely the middle of a gigantic wave that was rendering me sort of paralyzed and useless. And when the band broke up, what happened was the worst thing that could happen to someone who's depressed, which is I had a ton of money in the bank and nothing to do. So I could, if I wanted to just lay in bed all day and indulge in every dark depression, dark thought. Um, And on top of that, I was also sort of dealing with 
um, you know, finally coming to terms with my sexuality, feeling like it was time I needed to, I was either going to, you know, die in the closet, uh, literally feeling like I was um, going to kill myself and, uh, or I was going to have to find another way and that I needed to at least explore this part of myself, which I hadn't really done in earnest because I think being in a band and especially being in a popular band is an amazing excuse to not do work on yourself um, because you're just too busy and I have to keep writing and the, the angst is good. The misery is good because um, those are the lies that they tell you when you're a musician or when you're a creative or when you're a writer. Um, and I think I, I bought into that idea for quite some time, this idea that the suffering makes great art. I hate that idea. It's absolutely stupid. What took you out of that idea? What, what made you like kind of back away from it? Um, becoming happier and realizing that the only thing that stood between me and making things that were worth putting out into the world was doing it that, you know, that was really it. It was, you sort of understand that, um, that making things, it's just a matter of doing it. It's, it's not a matter of waiting to be inspired or, you know, all these things that I had sort of taught myself from reading, you know, every rock memoir and autobiography. I was really into that stuff in the (laughs) nineties. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, a lot of myth making, I think, and, and partially it's interesting because as a music writer, I felt like I was, you know, contributing to myth-making. And I think that what broke the myths for me, uh, when I stopped writing for magazines in the late 90s, more or less, um, one of the reasons why I said I stopped writing was because uh, it felt like I was just playing alt-rock Mad Libs. It felt like every story was the same. Everyone had their, you know, obstacle that they were victorious from and their, you know, conscious, conscience cringing major label episodes and, you know, all these things that, you know, I was essentially being paid to make more significant than they really were. And maybe this is also just a matter of aging, you know, as, as, as I was getting older and approaching the new millennium, I was you know, getting closer to 30 years old and, and feeling like, oh, you know, all these things that I thought were so consequential, that's just youth talking. Do you, feel, do you feel that when you're getting bored of telling those stories over and over again, that your own experiences of having done variations on that, like that was having all that demystified was con- contributing to that boredom? Yeah, I think they fed into each other. You know, it, it it's... Uh, and maybe that's part of it, right? Like I kind of felt like I was becoming a cliche as a musician and that sucked. Um, it, 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 it was difficult, but I think honestly, one of the things that sort of made me step away from music and writing for a while was the aging aspect of it. Um, I remember, I always remember this one time I was in New End Original. This was in the early 2000s. We were touring in Florida and I was, we finished playing a show and a kid came up to me after the show. We hung out, we talked a little while. He, you know, he was a cool kid. And we were about to say goodbye. And he says to me, you know, I just want to say thanks, man. I was like, for what? And he's like, just 
thanks for treating me cool. He's like, like, you know, saves the day we're here, like, you know, a couple weeks ago. And they just treated me like I was just like some shitty 16 year old kid. Like, uh, and I was like, rad, I don't believe that those guys are really nice. Like, and I do, I think saves the day are amazing. I, I don't know how that would have transferred into that. They're the nicest people, but you know, that's how he felt. And I was like, that sucks. And I was like, just curious, how old are you? And he's like 16. And I was like, Oh, Okay. <laughs> but I but I remember walking away from that and just feeling like, oh my God, like, you know, I'm getting older, but the audience is getting younger. How old were you at the time? Probably about 30, somewhere in that in that zone. So it was it was giving me this weird crisis where because when Texas the Reason was a band, the, the people who came to see us were largely our age. They our audience was our peer group, our our sort of peer set at least in the beginning. And so touring was fun because we would stay at their houses. We were making lifelong friends. Everything was, you know, sort of on the same level. When New End came around in the early 2000s and, and we were all sort of 30-ish um, and the kids were all like 16 to 20, it was very different and it felt very different. And I started to feel like kind of all of the things that maybe I felt about quitting Texas were true. Meaning that one of the things that I I remember saying when I quit the band was that, uh, you know, I said, I'm not Bob Dylan. I don't see myself playing this, you know, music when I'm like 60. And, and part of that was that I didn't see people wanting to pay to see me play when I was 60. Um, and to that extent, honestly, I probably would have said the same thing about, not not thinking that people would expect to pay me or pay to see me when I'm in my 40s. And yet here we are, and people will still pay to see me in my 40s. So maybe I just didn't know what I was talking about at all. You're 23, you're 32, you're 41. Gonna leave it all behind and not say sorry. What was the first thing that you made kind of on the other side of depression that made you realize, oh, I did not need depression at all? Like you kind of brought everything in your life to the art, regardless of your mindset. Um, so after the band broke up. I spent probably a year in paralysis in New York. I just, I had a two bedroom on the Lower East Side and I basically spent the entire year um, inside of my bedroom or at the Pink Pony Cafe on Ludlow Street. Um, and that was a, that was a significant place for me for two reasons. So uh, if you were in New York in 1998-ish or 97, maybe it was, can't remember. So the Pink Pony was right next to Max Fish. It was a coffee shop at the time. Now I think it's a restaurant, if it's even open. I don't know. Um, so it was just a coffee shop. My friend Josh Deutsch uh, worked there. Josh was uh, both the guitar player for Samuel, who was a band that Texas toured with. And then later, he was the uh, he became the guitar player in Gang Gang Dance. 
And uh, so Josh sort of was like the bartender of your favorite bar. You'd walk in and he'd be like, hey, and you'd have conversations with him. And he would just like drink you coffee or, 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 you know, give you enough coffee to make you sweating and crazy. And, uh, and that's what I would do basically every day. I'd go into the Pink Pony, I'd drink enough coffee to give me a heart attack, and then I would walk around the city and then go home. But there were other things happening there. And one of the things that would happen there was every Monday night, I want to say, was an improv night. And on any given Monday night, you could go hang out in the back room, bring an instrument, and people would just playing. And at any given time, I remember like, you know, people from Blonde Redhead and Ida and Pavement and me. And like, you know, we were just making noise and having fun. And it was so freeing. And it felt so creative. And it wasn't so formal as the way that I've sort of taken music up until that point. And I feel like that was a big uh a big green light for me because it made me remember that making music was also fun. And there was nobody in that room who was just like sitting in the corner depressed. We were all smiling from ear to ear, having a great time listening hard at what each other were playing and, uh, and, and trying to sort of come up with the next thing that was going to move the piece forward. It was such a great time and such a great scene. Um, and that fed into what the next thing I did was, which was I moved to Chicago and started DJing. And I probably spent the next five years as a, a DJ uh, in house music world. And, um, and, and I would say that that was probably the most significant musical sort of awakening that I've, I've had probably since. Um, house music made me rethink everything about all the other types of music that I play. Did you have any connection to house music prior to that? Just um, a little bit. We So when Texas would play in Europe, often we would play these venues where um, after the rock show, it would turn into a nightclub. And so what happens is when you're touring in a bus, you generally just sleep on the bus and then the driver wakes up and takes you to the next city at like five or six in the morning. So if you didn't want to sleep on the bus, you kind of had to stay local. And so we, I remember me and Glenn Mariansky, who was uh, touring with us and doing merch, uh, we would usually just decide to be the only ones to hang out in the club when it became a club night. And that was the first time I heard like, you know, German techno, that sort of early trance stuff. Um, it was all stuff that I kind of, I didn't understand at all, but, but sort of hanging out in the middle of it, hearing it on a real system and understanding the, the sort of sonic values of it, it made me super curious. So um, I started buying electronic records, you know, whatever type I didn't, at that point, I couldn't under, I couldn't tell you what the difference between techno and drum and bass was or anything like that. So I would just go to like Kim's and just buy anything <laughs> that looked interesting um, and I sort of like was getting more into, I'd say at that time, that was when I discovered like IDM and the early warp stuff and, uh, like the early fat cat stuff, like funk Storong and stuff like that. And then, um, it sort of just merged because when I moved to Chicago, obviously that's like the birthplace of house music. 
So it was like impossible not to start understanding that for that style. And, and there were other reasons why I think at the end of the day, house music is what drew me in completely um, largely because it was, it was so much of a, a haven for people of color and for queer people. Um, and at that point, I, you know, I would, I, my experiences were mostly in these white straight subcultures and it felt like just complete liberation when, um, when I sort of got ushered into Chicago house. Do you feel like this, this happened in large part because you were out at the time? Yeah, uh, well, it sort of, you know, I think it merged, it, it, it all sort of came at the right time. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking for it. it. As a matter of fact, I'd say that the way that it all happened is really sort of interesting. I, um, so the, the epicenter, I think, for Chicago House in a lot of ways is, is a record store that still exists called Gramophone Records. And um, so when I moved to Chicago, one of the first things I knew I wanted to do was go to Gramophone, go shopping. And, uh, and so I remember I walked into Gramophone and they have these listening stations all over the store, or at least back then, this is how they did it. And, uh, so different turntables all over the store and you'd have to go up to the booth and ask the person at the booth to give you a stylus to listen to records and you would give them your driver's license or your ID, um, in exchange. So the guys that was in the booth, I looked up at him and I was like, hey, I just want to um, grab a stylus. He's like, cool, give me your ID. I give him the ID. He looks at it. And then he looks at me and he goes, antimatter? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? You know. And so we started talking and uh, it was this guy, his name was Justin. He later became still a really, really close friend of mine. We became roommates for several years as well. But at the time, uh, he was just an ex-hardcore kid who had gotten into house music. And, uh, and so he and I became friends. He got me a job at Gramophone. And it all just sort of happened very serendipitously that I would start working there and I would really start to meet people and, and really start to understand the rich history of house music and, um, and its connection to who I was and sort of who I was discovering myself to be. Because I also think, you know, the, discovering myself on, on the level of queerness is one thing. But I also think that there was, um, there were a lot of issues with sort of my own self-identification as Latino. Um, I mean, I wouldn't find out until much later that I was indigenous as well. But at, at this time, you know, my understanding of myself as uh, Latino was sort of compromised by one, having sort of just existed in, in sort of white subculture for so long, and two, um, sort of linking that I, part of my identity with my family who were abusive and ultimately disowned me. So, you know, I think that's, it's always been a site of conflict. And house music really allowed me to stitch my identity t- together again. Hmm. At what point did you start uh, making music in that band? Uh, well, so the DJing stuff led to um, kind of rethinking how I wanted to make music. 
And there was a lot of interesting music that was going on, but ultimately the pr- I-, I needed a muse, right? Like in Texas, the reason Garrett was sort of my muse, like I loved writing songs for his voice and, uh, and how I write very much depends on who's singing. Um, so it wasn't really until I reconnected with Jonah Matranga um, when he was in FAR, they played their last show in Chicago and I went and we hung out that night. And, um, and that sort of started a, a relationship that's continued to this day. Jonah and I actually just finished working on uh, a record for him that's coming out and that has been coming out piecemeal um, over the last month. And uh, we, what I love about working with Jonah even back then is he always had this like real openness to, um, to not just using rock tropes to trying to figure out what other ways of being looked like in music. And what house music did for me, I think was that it brought back my, uh, my focus on rhythm because I think that when you're a songwriter, a lot of times you, you get trapped in, in sort of like the melody game and you just feel like melody is everything. And you're really trying to like figure out what, you know, what the right melodies are vocally or, or, or musically. Um, but my first instrument was drums and I, I feel like I've always played guitar like a drummer. Like I have a very percussive picking style um, and it's very encompassing. Like I don't like letting notes ring out necessarily. It's very dense, sort of like a drummer. And, uh, and so house music really allowed me to start like working on that. Unfortunately, what happened was I realized again that I'm really bad at being in bands. I don't like touring. So, <laughs> so new and original made this record because we were just like, we need to get started right away. So we sort of like whipped up a record. It's a cool record. It did well. We went on tour and then we just fell apart because it was just like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> what, what do you dislike about touring? Um, I, I think I feel like my life has been so generally disruptive that touring is just like a very uh, micro version of that disruption every day you are disrupted there's no chance of sort of being settled you're just constantly being moved and constantly trying to find you know yourself inside of this new place was it refreshing to go back to touring after you know you'd had these kind of long stretches of being you know solitary or just alone in like a just having a really set routine no, I've never. I, I never get into it ever. Even um, when Texas is the reason when we did our uh, we did twenty one dates, right? So we did. Uh, this was in twenty thirteen. We did twenty one dates in America and Europe, and one in Canada. And I remember getting to the last show in London, and just and saying, <laughs> "God, we really we we nailed this because I could not play another fucking show." I'm done. <laughs> um, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm very domestic. I think like, um, you know, and maybe this has something to do with just sort of like how I never, you know, felt at home, even at my home growing up, um, how I left home so early and move, you know, when you, when you leave home when you're 16 and, and, 
and sort of like try to find your place in the world, you move a lot. Like I would move like multiple times a year for years. Um, and I was just, you know, I was over it. I need stability and touring is not that. Did you enjoy the touring more? And like, uh, when you were doing like the Texas reunions, like more, I guess probably about 10 years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah, I would say, but for different reasons. I mean, mostly because when we were doing the Texas stuff, uh, the reunion stuff, we were doing stuff where it was like, you know, we were like flying to play shows. We were, you know, that's what I was wondering if like having like a higher degree of comfort and luxury made it better. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, it, it certainly helps to be able to like walk into a room, you know, walk into a club and feel completely taken care of. Like I don't have to think about anything. I know that somebody's going to set up my gear and make sure everything's great and just hand me a guitar and I can walk out and there's going to be food and dinner's going to be ready. And, you know, and getting to places isn't just going to be like, you know, sleeping on the bunk in a 15 passenger van, like, you know, two inches away from the roof of the van, hoping you don't crash and get crushed. Um, you know, all of those things, the creature comforts are there and, you know, hotel rooms are great. Not going to lie. <laughs> this is just making me think of um a little while ago i read the book that donald fagan from steely dan wrote and like a large portion of that book which is like the least amount of effort a person could put into a book honestly um <laughs> which is really funny in contrast with his actual music um but like he gets into like he this, this tour diary, not even a Steely Dan tour diary, but like, uh, you know, him touring with like Michael McDonald and a few and like Boz Skaggs is kind of a trio. But one thing he talks about in that is he got so into the comforts of touring a Steely Dan because they would just send the band and crew off in buses. But he and Walter would just hang out in hotels and fly. They would just pick a hotel that they like centrally located and fly to the shows individually <laughs> which is like an insane level of uh luxury but yeah i totally well, get why you would like that much better than doing a regular tour i mean there's there's sort of luxury and there's like indulgence right like i feel like we were sort of indulging a little bit but certainly not at the level of luxury yeah. um you know i think we were certainly just taking advantage of the fact that we could afford to do certain things and that you know we're not 24 anymore and like willing to you know be martyrs of the rock game or something like, <laughs> <laughs> i mean the only way to make it bearable i mean let's face it my my body doesn't work the way it used to right like it hurts to play on for an hour and a half jumping around like crazy. <laughs> My guitar weighs a lot, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, but I, I, there was also a level of like, you know, and it's not even a level of entitlement. It's just a feeling of like, you know, we earned it. Like, you know, let's, let's just enjoy it. What were those shows like for you? Kind of coming back to the music, but also kind of coming to an audience that was kind of, like really holding you in a high degree of reverence. I loved, this is all I could think about, honestly. And this is what I love every night was that we wrote songs that forget about like what the audience thinks for a second. Cause there's a million reasons why a, the audience might like a record that's 20 years old. Um, but I could never do this. I could never have done that 
if I felt it all disconnected from those songs, if I felt it all like I had moved away from them in some way. So every night I approached it with this almost pride that somehow we wrote these songs that we're not embarrassed to play 20 years later. (laughs) And not only are we not embarrassed to play them, we love them. They still ring true for us. There's still, you know, I can still sort of get into the mindset of where I was when, when these songs became real and it still feels right. Um, there's nothing about them that feels trite or juvenile or dated. Um, they, they still feel evergreen and that's amazing for any writer. I don't know that I'll ever have songs like that again. You know, it's just a, a time and a place and I'm, you know, I'm proud of it. listening to a little bit of the, that record um just before we were talking because i was like oh, let's get this bit into my head and i think about you know that record was ahead of the curve in a lot of ways so i think a lot of music caught up with you at least in like that sphere and I, well what i like about it too is that i honestly don't know like there's a lot of bands who are like oh you know we were influenced by texas is the reason and i'm like yeah great thanks i it's i can see where influence comes from but no one is, there's no band that you can be like, oh, they're a total Texas is the reason ripoff. Because for whatever reason, it's really difficult to do. Like the sound was a little bit idiosyncratic and weird. Um, not weird in like an avant-garde way, but just like in a way that just felt very uh, true to that particular combination. Um, yeah. And so like recently, for example, I did a, so Thursday played a, they did this like live stream. Um, they usually play like every year they play a holiday show in New Jersey, <clears throat> but obviously this year there's no shows anywhere. So they did a sort of a holiday live stream and it was sort of Thursday and friends. And they asked me to play uh, a few songs with them. So I played two Thursday songs and then we played a Texas song. And, uh, and so it was interesting because I've known those guys now for 20 years 
And, you know, they've always said like Texas was a huge influence, but I never heard it. Like I was sort of like, I don't, I don't know. Okay. You know, <laughs> if you say so, but, but then when I was tasked with learning two of their early songs, I really sort of was like, Oh, like it was so interesting learning the guitar for these songs because I realized that there actually was stuff in these songs that very much feel like something I could have played or wrote. Uh, maybe not wrote, but definitely played. They were these really, because remember how I was saying like my guitar playing is very dense, um, like there's no room to breathe. That's that's very much where these songs were. And playing them, I was just like, oh God, like if this is how I influenced you, this is bad. Don't do this. <laughs> Don't I mean, do I'm, this. I'm just like go back to like that music or any other music you've made. And, you know, there's definitely influences, you know, or things that are informing how you're writing and playing that people would not recognize. Right. Yeah, for sure. But like, I mean, so for me, I think what's funny is that one of the things that I find is, is the most formative for, for that era of writing for me was more just the circumstances. I lived in New York city. I didn't have access to, uh, any place where I could like play guitar loud, right? Like you live in New York and you sort of just have to like, you know, back then it wasn't like we even had a way to put headphones into your amp or something. Right. So I ended up writing a lot of songs in my bedroom on an acoustic guitar. And I had to figure out a way to make them sound complete in and of themselves. Because when you're just when you're just playing guitar like by itself, when you're just sort of, uh, when you're just sort of like alone without accompanying and not like four tracking an idea or something like that, uh, it's very difficult to just sort of layer ideas. So what I did was that's when I started getting into like alternative tunings and like you know specifically drop D, which was like the the Texas sound. And like that allowed me to play bass and guitar at the same time so that when I was writing, it sounded full and complete, even if I was by myself. Um, if, if I was in a place where I had access to a practice space, you know, like we practiced at uh, Chris Daly, our drummer at his mom's house in New Jersey. And so like we couldn't do that every day. We practiced maybe like twice a month. So if we had access to a practice space that we could afford back then, which we couldn't, those songs might've been completely different because they would have been an opportunity to layer them in real time with other people. But because I was mostly just in my bedroom writing, they kind of had to be what they were. And that meant these like really claustrophobic guitar arrangements. <laughs> what was it like coming back to that music after some it's a, a good long time of not playing it. Did you have to, was it like a, like a relearning process or was it all this muscle memory? It's all muscle memory. I can play any of those songs just, you know, asleep at this point. <laughs> Would that be true of other things you've done? No. <laughs> I don't know why. I really don't. Like I have tons of, because uh, it's not even like we lasted that long as a band where I was just, oh, I've been playing those songs for 10 years straight. Um I don't know what it is. It, it was just, uh, you know, maybe it was just uh, this this connection to it because when the band started, I was proud of it um, 
on a different level because I, so I had already been in Fountainhead at that point and um, I quit before they made their record, even though there are songs on the record that I wrote or co-wrote. Um, you know, I basically got into the Harry Krishna thing. And so I quit the band to become a Harry Krishna. And then, um, you know, I was in Resurrection, I was in 108, I was in Shelter. I was basically, you know, for the first bunch of the 90s in other people's bands. Um, And there was always this question in my mind of like, you know, when am I going to do my band? And when am I going to do like a band where I'm writing the the songs and like nobody's going to ask me about Ray Capo or Rob Fish or Vic Takara or whoever. And, uh, and so when Texas started and, and, and it became our band and we felt um, ownership of it and it started happening, people liked it, like really liked it. Like I was shocked. We played our first show and I was like getting feedback that I really felt like, I think people sincerely like this. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was monumental to me. Um, it meant everything to me because it meant that I, I was able to learn something from these other people who had more experience than me. And I always say that I, I owe a lot to all the bands that I played in, in the early nineties that weren't necessarily my bands like resurrection or 108 or shelter. Um, because they sort of just, they primed me for a lot of things for sort of understanding what makes a song pop. And, uh, and so when I was finally able to do it on my own, I was just immensely proud. And I think so those songs are, are very meaningful to me that way. Yeah. It also seems just like a very um, pure, sort of looking for very pure distillation of like some kind of physicality that you're bringing to it. Something that's kind of crucial to who you are or, or at least were. I, I mean, if by physicality you mean sensuality or if I can maybe transpose sensuality onto that, because I think that I've always been or consider myself to be very sensual. I think that, you know, obviously we, we talk about that term now. I think people think about it more in terms of just purely tactile or even sexual, but it's, it's sort of all in the same boat. I mean, sensual to me is this idea of, being able to perceive things through a variety of avenues and being able to communicate things through a variety of avenues. So, you know, the songs to me are as much about, you know, the way I hear them as the way that I touch my guitar. Um, like they still sort of have, there is a, a, a physic, physical connection and, and maybe that's where the muscle memory comes from. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's really just that feeling of, uh, of total immersion into the song. And, um, and it's, and that's not something that I feel, this is actually a weird story. Um, but it, it was really meaningful to me. I, uh, the last time I saw John Bunch before he passed, John being the singer for Sensefield, um, was we played together in Chicago in 2012. And, uh, it was a Revelation Records 25th anniversary kind of thing. So it was like a bunch of bands, a whole weekend. And we were headlining one night. And I think Gorilla Biscuits were headlining the other night. And uh, and after the show, I was in the hotel lobby. And John comes in and sits next to me. And we started uh, just talking. And John has this way of, or had this way of always saying things like, 
I'm about to get really honest, you know. <laughs> he loved loved honesty, and uh, and it was very very true to his his being. But the first thing he said when he said that was, "I have to be honest. When this show was first booked, I resented the fact that you guys were headlining over us." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and then he said, "But then I was watching you guys soundcheck, and." When I was watching you, I just got this feeling that came over me where I just thought, oh, my God, like, these guys are really living inside the song. Like, they're doing this in a way where, like, we're we're not doing this. He's like, at least we're not doing this anymore. And they deserve to be headlining. Look at that. You know, and and he compared it to U2. And I was like, that's crazy. I don't know that I believe the U2 part, but because I've seen U2. They live inside the songs. I get it. <laughs> but I do understand what he was perceiving and appreciating. And, and that is the fact that I don't play those songs as just like an exercise in, you know, playing a rock song. They're not just rote to me. If, if I felt at all like I was just doing it to do it, I wouldn't do it. I don't care. I don't need the money. Um, I didn't do that tour for money. Um, I'm doing fine. Uh, but he's right. That's what I want. And it, it was nice because it felt like a confirmation of what I wanted. It felt like I was really doing it right. How is that approach uh, to art in general uh, informed other things you've done since? Um, honestly, it's probably kneecapped me. <laughs> because it makes me very non-prolific i think um i don't like to do things in public unless i feel fully fully confident about it um and confident in that sense of just like where i feel like this is absolutely something of value that needs to exist in the world um i think there are a lot of people who just want to create stuff and that's great i i'm not necessarily that i do want to create stuff the question is, do I want to share it? So I'm always creating, but what I decide to put out in the world um, is sort of a different story. And I and so I, I do think that this approach, this idea that like I really want to feel like this needs to be in the world, um, you know, to some on some level could be some people might uh, translate that to be or interpret that to mean some sort of self sabotage. Um, but I'm fine with it because, again, like I, I don't necessarily do art or music or writing as uh, sort of like a live or die um, financial decision. And I don't know that I ever want to do that again. I think that was really a difficult time in my life. Do you feel like you approach other music and other art with uh, the same standard held other people? Like, do I hold those standards to other people? Right. I guess like uh, I guess to kind of you know, call it like a, like a high level of commitment and urgency, something like that. I, I think that my one threshold for anything, music, writing, whatever art it is, is I just want to feel something. There's nothing that's like more disheartening to me than if somebody calls something I've made interesting. That fucking kills me. I, I hate interesting things. Um, I hate it. I hate it. I don't want you to to look at my art or, and I don't want to look at other people's art 
as some sort of uh, academic, formal exercise. Yeah, like I don't want. It's not an academic thing. It's you know, like I, 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 I don't want to just interest you um, because that's sort of like that's a very fleeting thing. You know, interest is fleeting. But when you feel something, when you can sort of like cut into somebody's emotional psyche somehow, um, that sticks. That's what we keep talking about. Bjork's made a lot of records, right? Some of them are interesting. Some of them are deeply affecting. Mm -hmm. The ones I go back to are the ones that are deeply affecting. Yeah, I, I think I have a very similar relationship with Bjork since uh, I think I think the, right around the point where she becomes more interesting is probably like Medulla, I guess. Yeah, I'd say that's probably that's probably fair. I mean, I think the last, honestly, the for me anyway, the last deeply affecting record was probably Vespertine. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think there's the yeah the next one I think is Medulla or maybe like yeah. the soundtracks she did. Um, but yeah, I think like there is a point where after that she becomes very, very formalist. I think Vespertine is kind of actually where she may be becoming formalist because she's working with Matmos on like the microbeats thing. And, but she's still like in that full emotional zone of the, of the, of the earlier records that she exactly. had made. Yeah. And you can have feeling and formalism. It, it's certainly, you know, you can see that in architecture. You can see that in a lot of different disciplines. Um, it's it's just that that feeling that this this creation is coming from somewhere. It's not just a creation that's meant to be purely provocative. Um, I'm not really interested in anything like that. Just you know, I, I'm not really interested. I don't like when people are just like, I just want to make you think. Like mm, that's cool. There are other ways to think. <laughs> <laughs> what are some things in the recent past that have moved you in this this way? Hmm, interesting. I mean, I can tell you right now. I just finished watching "It's a Sin," and it's a five episode TV arc about the AIDS crisis in uh, the nineteen eighties and early nineties in England. And to me, it was a perfect piece of art. A hundred percent. It had everything. There was nothing. I assume it's named after the Pitch Up Boys song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, that's difficult. Like television to me is a very difficult medium uh, because stories are, are sort of meant to be segmented and it's really difficult to maintain a, an emotional arc for very long before it starts to feel too familiar or too predictable or uh, any of these other things that, that sort of kill the mood. Um, there are very few television shows that I can like watch past a couple seasons um, because I start to feel that way. But, you know, this is, this was perfect. It was, it was a perfectly long five episode arc that, you know, was both uh, elements of, political criticism elements of sort of like queer uh education like sort of like uh edifying moments for younger queer people to to sort of understand what the uh previous generations went through um sort of social critique was there 
but really always all the way through it was carrying this real emotional heft. And, and I should add that when I talk about emotional heft or emotions in general, this coming from the guy who, you know, people might blame for emo, I feel like um, it's important to say that emotions are not just things that make you cry. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole range of emotions. <laughs> and, uh, and some of those emotions are, are, are feelings of love, feelings of anger, feelings of distress, feelings of frustration. Um, all of those things can be in the mix. I mean, obviously, I love hardcore music, and hardcore music never makes me cry. Um, but when I feel the real sense of, of anger or the real sense of frustration in a song, that turns me on. That's, you've got me. I'm a fan of your hardcore band. What was your uh, relationship with the generation of gay men, queer men above you? Like the, because I mean, obviously lots of those people are no longer with us, but like in the time in the, in the eighties and nineties, what was uh, your relationship? So first I would say that there's, I think for every gay man, there's sort of an ambient relationship with other gay men, meaning, you start to identify who's gay and who's not, not necessarily by whether they're even out, but by sort of uh, just your intuition, right? Maybe people say gaydar. Um, But like, so for example, when I was in second grade, 100% positive that my teacher was gay and 100% positive that he died of AIDS um, because he died very young of quote unquote cancer in the 80s in a parochial school. Uh, I mean, if you saw a picture of him, you would have like now in 2021, if you saw a picture of him, then you'd be like, wow, this guy looks like, you know, any one of those classic fire Island pictures from the eighties, you know, like the mustache, the stringy hair, the sort of like, you know, various like lithe body. Um, but even back then, uh, in second grade, literally I was, I remember thinking I have something in common with this person. I don't know what, but we have a connection. We have something in common. Um, When I was first sort of cognizant enough, uh, like as I got older, as a teenager, the very first gay couple that I ever met um, was in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, They were a French couple who were actually Hare Krishna devotees. And they used to hold programs at their house and all the big gurus would come speak at their house and they were very well loved in the community and they were very sweet and I remember one of them in 1991 or so sort of picked up and went back to France and the other one stayed back and had an apartment on Avenue A and at that point I was working at a health food store in the East Village and he used to come in all the time and you know we would talk and then little by little Um, I just noticed that he was getting sicker and sicker until the point that he was in a wheelchair and he uh, had to have a a health aide with him to do his shopping. And he would, you know, come to the store with her and and they would sort of roll through the store and I would help them out and give him big discounts and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, everything was such a secret back then. But after a certain point, I understood Um, And then, you know, obviously later confirmed that, you know, both of them um, 
died of AIDS. And for that to be the first sort of, um, you know, real exposure that I had to gay men, you know, the, they were two people that I really appreciated. They were very affectionate and kind with me. I was obviously very not even close to out of the closet in 1989 and 1990. Um, but, you know, again, the intuition's there. They knew. They knew. And for both of them to, to pass like that, I think, sort of set me on a weird path because I feel like uh, I, I, just, I just thought that that's how I was going to go. And I don't. Do you feel like that was part of what was keeping you in the closet for a long time? Yeah, there's a lot of things, but it's it's sort of like that. It it all adds to the bubble of shame that I think all queer people have to deal with at some point. Um, I mean, obviously, I can't say what the younger generation is exactly experiencing, but at least of of many generations of of gay people and and gay men in particular, um, the bubble of shame is, is. vast and encompasses a lot and the connection between sex and death is something that I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to shake completely because it was so formative um there was there's never been a moment in my life where um I've been able to have sex and not at least for one minute think of death that's crazy Hmm. This reminds me of uh, when I did this episode, one of these episodes with Rob Sheffield. Uh, he's in his mid fifties. Um, mm-hmm. We were on a tangent talking about. Oh, he was he was talking about how the bleak a lot of the eighties were, and how there was this kind of omnipresent feeling of, you know, the, the, the AIDS crisis, and then on top of that is the threat of nuclear war, it kind of permeating everything. And, you know, I think a lot about, you know, how things are in the moment right now, as we're in early 2021, um, that, you know, there's a, this feeling of like, oh, things have never been this bad. But th- I don't know. I think like <laughs> you don't have to go too far in the past to find other times that are, are very bleak as well. Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly frank, and I've been saying this for a long time, as shitty as 2020 was, it really reminded me a lot of like 1987, <laughs> like in so many ways. Um, well, first of all, Reagan, you know, uh, was maybe like a nicer version of Trump, but I mean, he was very, you know, he, maybe he wasn't like, um, he didn't have the same authoritarian dictator type, type sort of wannabe, uh, death wish that Trump had, but from a sense of wanting to keep the rich people rich, uh, he was he was on there. Uh, from a sense of not giving a shit about a pandemic, Reagan was there. Um, and and we know that you know obviously with COVID and with AIDS, we're talking about disproportionately affected communities of color or minority communities like the queer community in the '80s. So that was very similar to me. Uh, even when you talk about the sort of rise of white nationalists and the proud boys i mean the proud boys to me they look a lot like a lot of the white pride skinheads of the 1980s who like you know there was a period of time again i can only speak for new york because that's where i grew up but there was definitely a period of time in new york city where there was a group of skinheads that i always thought were 
sort of politically dodgy, but generally accepted. So there were lines that you couldn't cross, right? So there were like, there were proper white power skinheads and those people were largely marginalized after some time and and sort of kicked out of the scene. But then there were also white pride skinheads, um, people that used to live in this like place in Greenpoint called the White House um, and, you know, bands like Youth Defense League uh, who would just be like, we're not racist, we're just proud to be white. And, you know, and you'd, you'd know the difference because like white pride skinheads would wear white laces in their docks and Nazis would wear red laces in their docks. And, you know, it was like this whole thing. Um, and, but, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, it's, it's not really that different. They were, they're, they're sort of still doing the same thing. Like uh, they're, they're trying to repackage. So the version of a white pride skinhead is sort of the same thing as saying you're a Western chauvinist right? Like it's just rhetorics, uh, rhetoric. And it's just like, basically like saying like, uh, you know, it's basically just, you're, you're not trying to say fully what you are. Um, but obviously the uniform is the same and, you know, they're just sort of like taking a page from 80s skinheads really. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't see that much of a difference. There's, there's a lot of parallels going on. I think there's kind of two things, right? One is, you know, people kind of coming out of a, a denial of things happening or, or, or the idea that things ever really end. And then on the other side of it, you have social media that makes everything louder. Well, okay. So that's, I was, that's what I was going to say. The, the major, major, major difference uh, between now and then is um, media and sort of like the way we consume information. And, you know, back then, if you wanted to know how to be a white power skinhead, you had to subscribe to the white Aryan resistance newspaper or something like you had to. And that's a real thing, by the way. I knew someone who who subscribed. Um, (laughs) And uh, and that was like how you sort of communed with other skinheads or like you would, um, you know, there was personal ads and Max from Rock and Roll and you might like you know, wink, wink, I'm into screwdriver or <laughs> I like, or maybe that was too blatant. So you'd be like, I'm into brutal attack or no remorse or something. Um, you know, and then you'd throw in a lot of non-political oi bands just to sort of, you know, keep your cover. Um, so news traveled slow and scenes were very regional and scenes were very, uh, slow to develop and organize. Um, but now we have the situation where everything is just at mock speed all the time. And this is really, I think, the biggest difference is that, and hopefully this is what I'm going to say, is that 
hopefully these things will implode as quickly as they developed. That's sort of the hope. And I think that's actually happened with a lot of white nationalist organizations already. Like, you know, one minute Richard Spencer was everywhere, the next minute, where the hell is he? Right? So this is sort of like the the low attention span of the social media economy. And, um, you know, it just feels very intense right now. And maybe, you know, it is intense and it's getting more intense. Um, but, you know, I think we're also finally understanding. And I think the tech companies are also finally tr- slightly copping to the fact that media does play a role in the development of culture and that there needs to be a sense of refereeing. Yeah. I think one of the other effects of, you know, that limited attention span uh, energy of the social media, like all, all the different forms of social media, is that it can make people feel like they're in kind of an eternal now, like they extrapolate now into the future indefinitely, which is like not how we know anything to work. Right. You know, things don't, things get better, things get worse, but things don't really stay the same. I think the problem is, and this is, I, I've said this, you know, when I was writing for, so there was a period of time where I was also a contributing editor at MySpace Music when MySpace was a thing. And I remember at that time, my editor was like, so we need to have at least like, you know, you need to come up with at least like five or six ideas every day. And I'm just like, oh my God, like, because in order to do that, everything has to be news. So things that normally you would be like, who cares what the fuck Rihanna did? Um, now all of a sudden you have to not only report it, but you have to make it interesting. So you're, yeah. you're essentially making the news. Um, and I think that that's had a detrimental effect across the board, not just you know in music journalism, but also in, in mainstream journalism. Uh, you, you need people to click. I got to keep coming up with news. And so now it feels like everything is news all the time. And it's fucking exhausting. We can't continue to live like this. We're all going to go in crazy. I don't think it's a, a, a coincidence that all of a sudden everyone I know is reporting, you know, PTSD and anxiety disorders. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're sort of, we've, we've hoisted this on ourselves or, or media has sort of hoisted it on, on ourselves. And, and this is like, uh, again, it's, this, I used, one of the classes I used to teach at Brooklyn College was a class called Orality, Literacy, and Technology. And this was a class that I developed. It was based on a class I took in grad school, and the linguistics uh, department had asked me to develop a version for undergrads. And in this class, one of the main... Uh, this class is very driven by the... the, um, m- the, the medium is the message... Maxim, right? Marshall McLuhan. And I think a lot of people misinterpret that, have misinterpreted that maxim ad nauseum over many, many years. What Marshall McLuhan's getting at when he says uh, the medium is the message is not, he's not talking about content. It's not about the content of media. It's not about Rihanna's purse or, you know, Richard Spencer getting punched or whatever it is. Um, What he's saying is that media itself, um, the value of what that media is and what that brings to the table 
is the long-term effect that it has on a culture over time. So we won't know the value of uh, Twitter, for example, until many years later. And one of the things that he says is that these things are not things that you can anticipate. These are unanticipated events. And so I think we're starting to feel the reckoning of that now. We're starting to understand that, you know, when, when people created Friendster and MySpace and Facebook, the idea was very, um, we are the world, right? Like it was very like, it's about connection and friendship and making new friends and finding old ones. And that was how we, we positioned it. It's also um, an internet that had not like really scaled yet. Right, right. Yes. Like we just, we didn't have any idea where this was going to go, how this could develop, how this could turn into something completely different. And, uh, but media moves without us and it became exactly what it wanted to be. Um, and so one of the things that Marshall McLuhan said was that as media theorists, you absolutely need to, your job is to try to anticipate these things because if, you know, you may not anticipate these things, but if you read any sort of media criticism from the last 12 years, um, you'd see that there were people who were anticipating these things and were warning us and were saying, this is what's next. And no one cared and no one listened. And largely that's because of the capitalist element that moved into um, social media properties like Facebook um, and Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot now about how my first maybe 10 years of experience with the internet starting around probably 2002, 2001, something like that. My site starts around 2002. So I guess it's maybe a year or two before that. Um, but, you know, for a long time, all through that time, like the internet was generally a thing that was an elected, elective thing. You just did it because you wanted to go to it. It's a, it's a, it's a place where you could kind of go to hide from the world. And then once social media takes off after the iPhone, et cetera, it becomes the world and you now have to hide from the world. Right. Ways. And I, I think like part, I think you're already starting to see that, uh, probably what is the next stage of things is people using discords and all sorts of things that are, you know, back to hiding from the world. I mean, I think what's interesting for me is how much over the years, um, my quote unquote internet personality has merged with my in real life personality in the sense that when it, when I first went on social media, like when I first started a Friendster account, um, I remember you know, you're sort of presenting yourself in a certain way. Um, you know, these are my favorite books. These are my favorite records. You know, like you're sort of being defined by what you like and, um, you know, picking the best photo and all these things. And then there just became a a brand without calling it that. Yeah, definitely. Like it, it felt like that, but I, there's a certain point in time where I got exhausted of having two personalities basically. Um, and so, that's that's probably the time when I changed all my social media stuff to my name. So like, you know, at Norman Brandon, um, as opposed to, you know, having a nickname. And that, I think, changed the way I view social media. At this point, I just sort of allow all my dimensions to exist. And I really don't care anymore um, 
about my brand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I, I had a similar thing where I think I can't remember exactly at what point it would be, but it's, it's pretty far back in time now, but just at the point where all of the social media that I have is under my name or flux blog, which is synonymous with my name. And I think a lot of that was, and even going back to like, I think just before that was message boards, switching everything over to my name was to make myself like more accountable to anything that I said. Yeah. I think that was part of it too. Um, I mean, obviously like I'm not, I, I don't know that I've ever, you know, tweeted anything that created a shit storm or something like, um, I don't know that that's my personality. I'm usually fairly thoughtful, even though occasionally I want to be provocative or, or sort of, I want to provoke something, but, um, it's, I think, you know, if anything, social media has sort of also made me think a little bit more about, um, so for example, let's say Twitter and Instagram where I'm most active. Um, my followers on Twitter and Instagram, I would say are fairly split between gay Twitter and Instagram and sort of like punk Twitter and Instagram. And I'm always sort of joking how, you know, my gay followers must see me post stuff that's like about hardcore and be like, what the fuck are you even talking about? And how like my punk followers will see me posting queer stuff. And I'm like, I sort of wonder if there's any elements of discomfort there. <laughs> right. Like, funny I've followed you for so long and I mean, I'm, I belong to neither sphere really. So I just see you. It's just Norman thing. Well, maybe hard, maybe the punk Twitter could also be extrapolated to be like just music Twitter or something. Yeah. Right. But it's um, yeah. Like I, I do feel like I have this bizarrely bifurcated um, internet personality, and that's why I try so hard to maybe uh, merge them or, or synthesize them in a way that makes sense. Because that's just it, you know. It's sort of like my life. My brand is inconsistent. I do. I go wherever I am. And, <laughs> and uh, being brands is a little absurd, uh, but also makes yeah. sense. It's mediated, you know? Well, I mean, but here's the thing. Like, a brand makes sense when you're talking about a, a, a company because a company does have an objective, right? Your, your company is to sort of sell your, yourself. And even when you talk about bands having brands, I mean, let's not be, you know, naive about it. Branding a band has commercial uh, consequences. That's sort of what, you, what you're hoping for. Um, it, it, it can be, and that's not to say that branding can't be creative. Of course it can, but we all know why we do it. So let's not play cute. Um, but a person, <laughs> I have no commercial end game. I'm just a person. I have many dimensions and I guess, you know, for a long time, I never expressed many of my dimensions and it's always bothered me, right? Like, I think that, you know, for example, with queerness, I think that there's a certain type of queerness that straight people are most comfortable with online. And it's usually the type of queerness that's very empowering, that, you know, talks about overcoming some sort of adversity, that talks about the value of diversity. Um, you know, those types of things, I think a lot of liberal straight folk will read on my, my, my timelines and be like, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. You know, 
But what if I felt like I wanted to start posting thirst traps, right? Sexuality is also a part of my sexuality. (laughs) And yet I feel like, uh, you know, having been involved in music for so long, it's on some level, I think, neutered me uh, in the public consciousness. People don't, I, I don't know that I, I'm able to sort of express those things in the way that I see other gay men express those things. And I think that that, uh, that's sort of interesting and weird and, um, you know, something that I've been thinking about. This just made me think of, um, so as we record this, uh, the, the producer Sophie died about a couple mm-hmm. days ago. And one thing that I've seen a few times in people talking about her music was that she just absolute no matter what she was doing whether she was working with like mainstream stars or anything she did on her own just absolutely refused to bend to cis taste mm-hmm. and that feels like a like, like pretty much on the other end of it where it's it, it is and maybe people do feel more um emboldened to just not dilute in any way now i yeah i would agree with that i also think though that in some ways I would like in my experience um, in which I'm best known for a thing that happened a very long time ago to sort of being a child star (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, I think child stars struggle with coming into their own as, uh, as adult stars or as adult actors, let's say people who are still working in the industry and trying to reestablish themselves with, but everybody's just like, oh, come on, you're always going to be 2D from the facts of life or whatever it is. And I think that um, some of that is real. Like some of that is, is real in the sense that there are always going to be people who want to keep you uh, in that box, in that role forever. Um, and some of that is, is self-inflicted. Um, you identify so much with the person that was in that box that you feel uncomfortable with coming out of it um yeah it's it's sort of like it's ultimately a psychological shit show and i yeah and i guess you have to if you you know you have like artists like uh you know justin bieber and like a whole lineage of people like that who've had to you know very consciously plan out a way of getting out of that to have an ongoing career right and and even then have made you know mistakes <laughs> because it's also a mind fuck to feel like um you know i can imagine with justin bieber right like you know what if baby was the last justin bieber hit you know like what would that have done to his psyche <laughs> and he's out here making records and no one cares you know like what if what if um i think that i i always remember this conversation i had i brought it up in a podcast once with Tim Kinsella from Joan of Arc. But um, Tim and I were having a conversation once in the early 2000s. Um, and we were both sort of like in new bands at the time. He was in Owls and I was in New and Original. And I remember him saying something to this extent of, I don't know, dude, what if this is just it? What if I peaked when I was 20 and for the rest of my life, all anybody wants to talk to me is Captain Jazz? And I could be making like the best fucking art of my life. And it's still, nope, I'm 20. I'm, this is it. I peaked. 
And I wish I could tell her, like, to me, it's uh, live in New York, 1999. <laughs> a lot of people would disagree with that. But it's, but, you know, that said, like, I think now, right, it's funny, now Joan of Arc's breaking up and everybody's like waxing poetic. <laughs> but there were many years where he was just like, no one's coming to our shows. No one gives a fuck. No one's willing to come on this ride with me. And, you know, it's, it can be very disheartening and very crazy when something that you do when you're young is that well loved. And I could relate to that a hundred percent. It's, it's only been very recently, honestly, where I've been able to uh, in my brain sort of just be able to just appreciate that for what it is and just say, you know what? Most people don't get that one thing. Most people are making music their entire lives and don't get that one thing that everybody wants to talk about. Boo-hoo, you did something that a lot of people loved, right? (laughs) I had to sort of like just put myself in check. And now I can appreciate that. And at the same time, I still want to move forward. I still have other things to do. I still have other things I want to make and put out in the world. Um, And I can't worry about whether or not they're going to have some sort of uh, monstrous effect um, any more than I worried about it back then. I didn't worry about it at all. It just happened. So I so to kind of circle back to what we were saying at the start about, you know, you've had this, you know, you've had different lives, you've had different careers. Um, you know, I've, I've see people, you know, get very anxious about this all the time, like young people in particular, um, about, Oh my God, I have to commit to this one thing or, you know, uh, this feeling of like a, a clock ticking that they, you know, they, they can't have anything that they could want unless they do it by the time they're 22. Right. Um, like what, from your perspective now, like how would, what would you say to people like that? I think of Tim Gunn. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Tim Gunn changed my life. I actually have a Tim Gunn bobblehead sitting right next to me on my desk. Um, he really, uh, he is someone that um, no one knew who he was until he was what, like 70, (laughs) right? Like he managed to just have this wave of real meaningful uh, sort of cultural effect on people and personal effect on people um, way into his life, way deep into his life. And I guess having my little Tim Gunn bobblehead and and thinking about him, honestly, I just feel like this is it. This is what I'm, this is, this is all I can say is that um, I can't predict what's going to happen, but I know that the potential for uh, having a meaning of meaningful effect on people, whether it be through my art or just through in my personal relationships, I know that it's there. I know that it's the potential is there. Um, to come into fruition and to exist. And that it's sort of like what I said before, the only thing that will keep that from happening is not doing it. So it's always just about doing it, just doing the work and not being attached to the results. Norman, thank you so much for doing thank this. You. <laughs> How can people find you? Uh, well, it's my name now, apparently. <laughs> I'm always at Norman Brandon, wherever uh, fine toys are sold. Norman Brandon on TikTok. <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> you got to get on TikTok. You got to you you search dancing. TikTok? 
No, no. I, I, TikTok's one of those things where it's like, I don't need to be on TikTok. And I see like the funny TikToks through other memes. That's where I know? feel like, you know what? Like I can admit when I've aged out of something, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a thing where it's like, I don't need to be the 40 year old guy walking around on TikTok. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that there probably are people who are doing it really well who are my age or, 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 you know, in, in that range, but, uh, it's not, it's not the passion for my creative direction right now.